The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Um, yeah, we've, we're back in John's Gospel again. We've been, uh, we spent about five months in John's Gospel last year, and we, we kicked off again in John 6 last week. We're going to be here for a few weeks, and then Easter, and then for a few more weeks, and then something else. And so we'll keep going as, as kind of a, generally the pace that we're doing. Um, and last week, we, we began looking at the, the miracle that Jesus kind of, that, where Jesus fed 5,000 men and the women and children who were there as well with five uh, small barley loaves and two fish. Before we got to that miracle, though, we, we only got as far as verse 6 last week. We looked at the very important lead up to that miracle because in that miracle, Jesus isn't just fixing or solving a catering problem there. He's actually teaching his disciples something about uh, himself in this miracle, something about that is important for his disciples and all of his followers to know. <clears throat> and really what he's teaching here is that um, for his disciples and in anyone who would want to follow Jesus, he's teaching them about the true nature of his identity. He's not just a clever miracle worker. He is actually God. You see, we're not permitted to come up with a Jesus of our own liking and our own making. It's important that the Jesus we follow is the Jesus of Scripture, not the Jesus that we kind of prefer him to be or the Jesus that we kind of, you know, we've, we've kind of put together in our minds over time. So let's, let's pray and then we'll uh, spend some time looking at this passage. Lord Jesus, um, your word tells us that your power is made perfect in weakness, Father. And Lord, I, uh, I ask, Father, that as I preach your word this morning, and as we hear your word this morning, that we would not approach this as people who think they are strong, but people who are weak. People who are aware of the reality of our sin and how that has separated us from you, Lord. How our rebellion has divided us from you, Lord. And that even in our best strength and our best wisdom and our best uh, cleverness, Lord, that we cannot find our way back to you, Lord. But in your mercy, you sent your Son to die for us, to to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we deserve, to, to be raised to life again so that we would have new, newness of life, guaranteed resurrection, Father. And then, Jesus, you ascended into heaven. You sit by the right-hand side of the Lord and you intercede on our behalf, Lord. And you are there and you reign supreme. You are our King and you are our glorious Father. And so, Lord, we want to commit this time to you that any... Any strength, any, any power, Lord, that is found this morning would truly be of you, Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, Lord, be acceptable in your sight. O oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer, may you receive all the glory for this in your name we pray. Amen. One of the uh, tasks that lies in front of every single parent is trying to keep your kids safe. It means you have to say things like, look both ways before you cross 
the road. And sometimes that, you know, you need, really need to not just say it, you need to drum that into them. Or make sure you swim between the flags or stay together or stop playing with knives or whatever it is. Um, in our house recently, just in the last week, it's been, um, hey, next time you're on the swing, don't let go. That's why you got winded, buddy. Like, I love you, but that's why you let go. That's, that you can't get angry at us. That's what happened. Or don't put your pencil, don't, don't, don't put your finger in a pencil sharpener and twist. Don't, just don't do it. Like, it's, there's a razor blade in there that, that, was, that had to be said this last week as well. Um, uh, other ones, we were swimming at uh, Golden Beach yesterday. The water was quite murky. You couldn't see your hand about a foot beneath the water. So the instruction was, please don't swim as deep as you can and away from me as a joke because I have no idea where you are and it scares me for like that three seconds that you're underwater for or whatever it is. Or it might be just blow out the candle. Let's blow out the match. Blow out the, ma- blow out the match right now. Blow out the match because it's dangerous. There's all these dangers and you're not aware of how dangerous things are until you have... Kids and especially boys who just throw caution to the wind and, um, yeah, and you lose your hair and all those kinds of things happen. (laughs) There's dangers in life, but one of the things that Christians should never, can never know enough of or should never hear uh, enough about is the danger inherent with approaching the God of the universe. And I, and I don't mean danger in, in the sense of like that, you know, you might, you know, um, you know, stub your toe or something like that. It's actually that God is powerful and holy and mighty. The, the reason that we need to be, that, we, that the Bible talks, tells about, talks to us about fearing God is because very basically, he is holy and we are not holy. And that might not seem like a big deal, but it really is, and it is absolutely not up for debate. There's no wriggling out of that one. He is holy, and we are, we are not. And, and the more you understand about what holiness truly means, that is, uh, that God is truly alone in his perfection, the more we can come to understand just how amazing it is that we can actually draw close to God. Time and time again, the Bible reminds us that God is holy. He is not a a domesticated God who fits on our shelf or fits in our pocket or fits inside of our minds or our lives. Becoming a Christian is not a matter of trying to fit God into your life. Being a Christian is a matter of finding life in Him. That we're not trying to reduce Him down and get Him to a kind of our size that we can carry Him around, but actually we are finding ourselves in Him. He is far bigger than any of us can ever imagine. Psalm 96 tells us, For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. He is a great God. Consider when God met Moses on Mount Sinai and God told Moses, Go down and warn the people not to break through to see the Lord, otherwise many of them will die. That is Moses, don't let the people on the mountain, they'll die. It's not because the mountain was a dangerous mountain to climb, it's because God was there. He is no teddy bear. He is a roaring lion. You might remember from uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that moment when Susan is, uh, is talking. And she says, I thought, I thought he was a man. 
Is he quite safe? Talking about Aslan, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. This is important to us because like last week, we, and when we looked at the beginning of this miracle last week, we went back to the story of Exodus because John is drawing so much out of the story of Exodus as he writes this. We're going to go back to the story of Exodus again this morning and see uh, the time where, where God commissioned Moses to rescue God's people out of slavery in Egypt. That if we can understand as much as we can about Exodus, in fact, if you're the kind of person who wants to get the most out of John 6, I encourage you this week to read through Exodus. That John is drawing, so much of John 6 is growing out of John's knowledge of the story of Exodus. And we're going to go back this morning to the moment where God first commissioned Moses to, to be his, his, uh, his person, be his prophet who would bring the people out of slavery in Egypt. And we're going to go back to Exodus 3 where he appeared to Moses in a burning bush. It says there, Moses looked. He saw that the bush was on fire but was not consumed. In other words, there were flames. This bush was on fire but the bush was not being consumed. It was, the leaves weren't shriveling up. There was no ash. It was just a, a bush on fire without being consumed. And this is what theologians refer to as a theophany, a representation of God visible within creation for mankind to see. And the fact that the bush was on fire but not being consumed, it tells us a number of things. It conveys God's brightness and his glory. It conveys uh, the danger of the fire, that he's a, da- he's a, he's a fierce God. Uh, it, it communicates his independence, that he doesn't rely on fuel to exist, but he exists in and of himself. And this divine fire of this bush on fire also conveys the great comfort of the gospel. That God can dwell with the creature without destroying it or consuming it. It foreshadows the moment where God would enter human, enter the earth, enter into history and dwell with mankind in Christ and through Christ and make it possible for us to draw close to God, to be close to God without being incinerated by Him. But that we could, as, as people who are not holy, people who are unrighteous, that we would be made righteous, made holy because of Jesus Christ, and therefore draw close to this infinite fire of the Lord. And it was in this moment where God met with Moses, that God reveals His name to Moses, the name of Yahweh. Loosely translated, I am. He is the I am. This is the personal name of God. And that name, Yahweh, the I am, became associated for Israel, associated with salvation. It was Yahweh who saved them out of slavery in Egypt. When Moses asks God, who should I tell them is the God who is saving them? God replied, this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And this is important for John 6 and the miracles that we're going to look at today because Jesus did not just come to fill empty bellies with food, but to reveal himself as that same God. 
There are seven times in the book of John where Jesus identifies himself somewhat as this I am. It's commonly known as the I am statements in John's gospel where Jesus says, I am the bread of life, I am, I am the light of the world, I am the good shepherd. There's, there's seven times where Jesus says that. And the first of those times, I am the, the bread of life, that's going to happen later on in John 6. We're not going to get to that passage today, hopefully next week, depending on time. But we do get an introduction today to the beginning of Jesus' massive claims to his disciples of his divinity. And we're going to look today at these two miracles. Firstly, Jesus feeding the 5,000, and then Jesus walking on water. Now, for a long time, I couldn't work out why, when John was organizing his uh, gospel in this way, when John was putting all of this together, I couldn't work out why John put this miracle here. Like, if you go back and you look at Matthew and Mark, they put it there as well. So they talk about the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and then Jesus walking on water. John does the same thing, but what we know about John is that he doesn't necessarily just like fall into step with the other Gospels because that's the thing to do. He is very intentional about the, the location, the timing of everything. And the reason why I couldn't work out why this miracle of walking on the water was there is because he has, we have Jesus feeding 5,000 people, 5,000 men, and then later on in John 6 is this huge discourse about Jesus being the bread of life and, and, and really this big conversation that they're all having based on the miracle from the day before. But then right in the middle of that, John jams this story of Jesus walking on water. And I, for a long time, I was like, why, why did you put this here, John? Why did you put this here? It doesn't seem to fit. It feels like it's this interruption. But then I came to realize that actually these two miracles go together because they are telling the same story. When, when, when John writes about miracles, he never actually uses the word miracles, he always uses the word signs. Because what a sign does is it points to something other than itself. And these two miracles are really kind of two sides of the same sign. They're, they're both telling the same thing. Namely, that Jesus is far better than our greatest expectations. Jesus is far better than our greatest expectations. Like if you have the most spectacular expectations of Jesus, he is better. He exceeds all of them. So let's tackle it. Let's look at this. We're going to enter the story in verse 7. Uh, to give you a little bit of context here, Jesus has just asked Philip this question, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? And then John adds the note that Jesus asked this to test him for he himself knew what he was going to do. In other words, Jesus really wasn't just putting this on Philip, saying, hey, mate, can you please fix this for us? He had something else in mind. He, he's, he's less interested, actually, in Philip's reply to the question than he is about, about Philip's understanding of who Jesus is. He's testing Philip. So verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have a little. Now, 200 denarii uh, is around about six to eight months' worth of wages for the average laborer back then. And so I looked up what the average laborer wage, laborer's wages were in Australia right now, sixty dollars to $70,000 apparently. So we're talking about something like thirty dollars to $40,000 budget. Like if you had a thirty dollars to $40,000 budget to feed these people, Philip's saying, like, I don't think he's a caterer by trade, so I don't think he's necess this is necessarily exact, but... We're getting this, this scope of the crowds. We're saying if we need, if, even if we had this much money, it would not be enough for everybody to even have a little. 
Verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Now, this might be a miracle within a miracle. Because if you've ever seen a little boy eat his lunch, you know that getting him to share his lunch is a huge thing. Like, like Jesus could have been like, this guy's willing to share his lunch, therefore I'm God, and then close the Bible, because that's, that's a huge miracle. Like, if you watch my boys eat their lunch, they are not sharing a, a crumb with anyone. This is a miracle within a miracle. Andrew's suggestion, though, is a little hard to understand. It's almost, it's almost comical. Imagine going to a restaurant, a big fancy restaurant, and you get there and you sit down and everyone's seated and then the, the chef comes out and says, hey, listen, we've, we've run out of food, but we do have one slice of bread for everyone to share. So are we all good with that? Like, it, it's kind of, a, it's absurd. Philip's, Andrew's suggestion is that absurd. It, it's kind of laughable that he would even suggest this. But as we're told earlier, Jesus himself knew what he was going to do. These five barley loaves and these two fish will become a feast for thousands, tens of thousands. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in their place, so they sat down. The men numbered about 5,000. And if you weren't here last week, we made the note that there were women there as well and children. So we're guessing somewhere in the vicinity of maybe around 20,000 people, give or take a few thousand. Then Jesus took the loaves And after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also with the fish as much as they wanted. Now this might give us some of the mechanics around the miracle. I don't know about you, but I think, like, how did this happen? Did he just put some in a basket and then pray? And then, I think there was a movie when I was a kid of that. He lifted this basket up and brought it down. It was suddenly full of food. That's that's in my mind for some reason. But we kind of get into some of the mechanics of this, that Jesus is handing out this food, and as he distributes it, it continues to flow. And not only was it enough for everyone to have a little, but it was enough for everyone to have heaps. In fact, there was so much food that when they were full, it says in verse 12, Jesus told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. So 12 baskets left over from five barley loaves and two fish. I was never that good at maths, but that doesn't add up. Like imagine, I think I've got that question there. Okay, you're in maths, you're in primary school. Johnny had five barley loaves and two fish. But then his mum says that he has to share it with 20,000 of his friends. How much did Johnny have left over? That's a stupid question, isn't it? Like, your question might be how much did each person get, but how much did Johnny have left over? Nothing. Nothing left over. That's the answer to that question. No, John says 12 baskets full of food. It's an impossible, it's an outrageous question with an impossible answer, and yet this is exactly what Jesus does. And they were all full. So how would these people respond to this? It says in verse 14, When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, This truly is the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, that prophet that they're talking about is most likely the prophet uh, of Deuteronomy 18. 
where God speaks to Moses and he, he says he's going to raise up a prophet like him who would speak the words of God. And this isn't the first time we've actually heard of this prophet in John's Gospel, actually. If you go back to John chapter 1 and we looked at this, uh, the, the Jews sent the, um, some delegates out to find out the correct identification of who John the Baptist was. They couldn't work out who he was. And they came out and they asked him who he was and he said, I am not the Messiah. So they asked, well, are you Elijah? I am not, he said. Well, are you the prophet? It's most likely this is the same prophetic reference to which John replied, no. John the Baptist was not the prophet, not this prophet, but Jesus was. Jesus is the prophet that was promised by God to Moses and to the people back in Deuteronomy 18. So in that sense, these people were absolutely right when they said, this truly is the prophet who is to come into the world. But here's the really important thing. The crowds were correct in their identification of Jesus as the prophet. They got that bit right. However, they were wrong in their estimation of what that truly meant. And this right here is one of the most critical blind spots for a lot of people. For a lot of people, they can correctly identify, and we can do this ourselves, we can correctly identify who Jesus is, but then have the, have, we can have the right categories, we know, we know where to keep Jesus, we can have uh, the right theology, we can say all the right answers to all of those questions, but then tr- fail to truly count the cost of what that actually means. Many people say, yes, I believe in God. But often they fail to register the massive claim that they just made. If someone says, yes, I believe in God, the follow-up question should be, what does that mean for you? If there is a God, tell me about him. Like, see, if there is a God, like we're talking about, you know, if we're Western, nation, Western kind of culture, if someone says, yes, I believe in God, they're talking about some kind of uh, noble presence, I guess. Like, what does that actually mean for someone? A lot of people say, yeah, I can believe in God. I think Jesus was a nice guy, but fail to actually uh, take into account everything that they themselves have just said. Many people don't go on to that question. Their heads are in the sand. This is what was going on for these people. They, they got it right when they said that Jesus was the prophet but all they meant by that was that, like Moses, he was going to feed them every day. And we know this if we read on in John 6. That's what they really wanted. They didn't want a king. They, they just wanted food. And this makes sense of what happens next. Verse 15. Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. In Life Group a couple of weeks ago, we asked this question uh, we looked at this and we asked this question, why is Jesus resisting when people want to make him their king? Like this is the best opportunity for the kingdom of God to grow, right? 20,000 people, they want to make him king. All Jesus has to say is, all right, let's do it, guys. No, he doesn't. He withdraws to a quiet place on his own. On his own, by himself. Why is Jesus resisting it? But when people want to make him their king, they, they have passion for Jesus here. They have zeal for Jesus. Why does he resist? Well, it's the same reason why in all of the Gospels we will find Jesus keeping a really low profile, particularly towards the beginning of his ministry. 
You see, the Jews of Jesus' time were under foreign occupation by Rome. They, they weren't really a sovereign nation. And, and most importantly, the, the promises of God through the patriarchs really seem to have slumped. Like, like, what's going on here? Why isn't God rescuing us? Why aren't we feeling that, that, uh, that reconciled kind of redemption that we were promised? Why, why, aren't we, why aren't all those promises made to Abraham being fulfilled right now? So when they rush to make Jesus their king, it's because they think that he is the one who can deal with their Rome problem. They've seen him heal the sick. They've seen him fill their, fill their bellies. This guy is great. Not only can he fix our bodies, but he can also provide the groceries. Like, he should be king. This guy will solve all of our problems. Our problems will go away. See, they had this ulterior motive. They had this agenda in following Jesus. And I'm coming to follow Jesus with an agenda. I need Jesus to, to, to fix something for me here. I need him to solve a problem for me. And you and I fall into the same trap every time that we have an agenda for Jesus. Every time that we come to Jesus saying, I'm coming to follow you because I want to get this out of you. We want his stuff more than we want him. It might be material blessings. Somebody might say, I'm following Jesus because he promises us riches. Now, that's obviously wrong. And some of us might know someone who genuinely believes that. We might even look down on someone who says that. But could I suggest that there's a more sinister and subtle version of that exact same trap? Like, I don't think in my adult life I've ever met someone who's legitimately said, I'm following Jesus to get rich. But I do know plenty of people who have sidelined their faith for the pursuit of wealth. That there wasn't enough money in Jesus. There's, there's money elsewhere, and that's what I really want. They pursued careers and riches at the expense of evangelism, mission, worship, gathering with other believers, reading their Bibles, praying. They thought that their, their little sidebar was temporary, but then it became their norm. Jesus didn't just cut it for them. There wasn't enough material wealth in him to keep them interested. I also don't think that I've ever met anyone who has, who has said seriously that they are following Jesus because he'll never let anything bad happen to them. I've never met that person who has said that, but I do know a number of people who have stopped following Jesus after, this, after the tragedy struck. And I don't want to make light of the tragedy. That's real, that's heavy, that hurts, whatever that tragedy is. But yet, the agenda kind of becomes clear, doesn't it? I've never met anyone who has said that they're following Jesus for the lifestyle. But then the lure of the, the coastal lifestyle draws them away. There aren't very many Instagram-worthy moments with Jesus. It might be a matter of justice. I don't think I've ever met someone say outright, I have a stronger sense of compassion and justice than God. I know what is truly just and, and what should happen in my timing. But I do know a lot of people who have stopped following Jesus because they couldn't understand how he'd allow all of that pain and suffering. And again, I don't want to diminish that feeling. I know that feeling all too well. When you look at the tragedies and look at the stuff that's going on in the world and even in our country and you go, God, why are you allowing that? It might be that you know someone who's just gone through hell and you're thinking to yourself, God, why would you allow that? How could you do that? But the agenda is exposed when we assume that we have got better insight than God. 
that we've got a better way of administering justice than God and our timing is better than his and, and, and this, world would be, this world would be a better place if God would just simply get on board with our schedule and our agenda. Do you have an agenda in following Jesus that is different to what he has come to do? Maybe it's to do with his role as king. Like you might be okay with him as saviour but not as lord. Lots of people like the fact that Jesus saves, but they hate the fact that Jesus rules. He better not tell me what to do with my money. He better not tell me what to do with my time. He better not tell me who I can and can't sleep with. He better keep his mouth shut when it comes to the the physical boundaries between me and my girlfriend. You see, that's not following Jesus. That's loving the bread that he gives. So long as Jesus keeps giving me what I want, I'll follow him. But Jesus doesn't permit us to follow him on our terms. This is why Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. He is not permitting them to follow him, not on their own terms. And the same thing goes for us. We're not permitted to follow Jesus on our own terms because that is not following him at all. If the Jesus that we follow is a collage of our favorite bits of Jesus then he's a Jesus of our own making and he is no God at all. To follow a Jesus of our own making is really just to follow ourselves and we are terrible at being God. This is the point that John is making. We are not permitted to pick and choose the bits of Jesus that we like and then reject the rest that challenge us, reject the rest that call out sin in our lives. We're not permitted to have his love without his commands. We're not permitted to have, his, have salvation without also giving him glad and full obedience. We are not permitted to import our own definition for what believing in Jesus means. And this really is the lesson that the disciples learn next. It says in verse 16 that when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. Now, John doesn't, doesn't give much away as far as the reason that the disciples leave, leave without Jesus. But maybe they thought that he disappeared into the mountain and then he started walking back to Capernaum, so they thought, okay, we'll just get in the boat and head over there. If you read Mark's version of this, Mark actually tells us that Jesus sent the disciples on their way, said, oh, you guys head off on the boat. Uh, John leaves that bit out, not really sure why, but what we do know is that it wasn't actually important for John's purposes here. What is important, though, is that this was evening. This was taking place at night. And if you've been with us since the start of John's Gospel, you'll remember that darkness and light are two big themes in this book. And that John is always writing on multiple planes. He's always got double meanings of what's going on. He, he, it's as the, this, the Gospel of John, we said this last week, is shallow enough for a toddler to splash in, and it's deep enough at the same time, deep enough for an elephant to be completely submerged. Light and darkness, day and night, these are big themes in John. We've got to pay attention whenever they come out. The world is full of darkness. Jesus came as the light. In him was life, and that life was the light of man. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. We read in John chapter 1. Jesus says in John 8, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, darkness represents 
unbelief, or, or those who are yet to believe, or those whose belief is somehow inhibited, they, they are struggling to fully come to grips with who Jesus is. If you remember when that Pharisee Nicodemus met with John 3, met with Jesus in John 3, and we've got to remember that, that Nicodemus really struggled to, to come to grips with who Jesus was, that was at night. And then, in contrast, in the very next chapter, in John chapter 4, Jesus meets a, a woman at a well, and this woman, she's a, she, she, she really gets a good grip of who Jesus is. She seems to really kind of receive everything that Jesus is and receive that forgiveness. She runs into town saying, come and meet the man who told me everything I ever did. Like she, she was experiencing the grace of Jesus in that. And when do they meet? The brightest part of the day, in the, in, at midday. Later on in John's Gospel, when, when Judas goes and he leaves the company of Jesus and the company of the disciples to go and betray Jesus, John writes, he went out and it was night. Night and day, they are these big themes in John's Gospel. It represents those, darkness represents those who don't believe. And I don't think we're stretching it too far here either. Because verse 17 says, Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. The disciples were in some measure still under darkness, yet to, yet to truly understand who Jesus was, but they're about to find out. Verse 18, A high wind arose and the sea began to churn. Sudden winds like this are apparently quite common on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it's got something to do with the geography and it's what most likely uh, why these boats were equipped with oars. Verse 19, after they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. Now, just so we're all clear, that's impossible, right? That's not, humanly speaking, that's not possible. And maybe you're like me, that you've become so used to hearing this story that it's kind of lost on you, that we've forgotten how ridiculous this is. He's walking on water. That's outrageous. You see, the laws of physics are being suspended here. Not just in this general region around Jesus, but under every single footprint. The laws of physics are being undone, remade. Only underneath each of his feet. Jesus is undoing the properties of the surface tension of the water at will. Only the Creator can do that. And if we read in the other accounts, he can call others to do that. He does that with Peter, but only Jesus can do this. Only the one who created water out of nothing could command the watery substance to hold him up. Think back to the theophany of that burning bush for a moment. What, what is Moses drawing close to? He's drawing close to fire. It's danger. Get too close to the fire and you will get burned. Here, the disciples look up and on the surface of the water, walking towards them, is the terrible, frightening, white-hot flame of the center of the universe from which every single other thing has found its genesis and its sustenance from. Jesus is the center of the universe. The center of the universe was walking towards them. That's terrifying. God thought up waves. 
and sand dunes and molecules and beetles and gravity and wind and magnetic fields and lions and pigeons and daisies. He, he invented, God invented Jupiter. Like just, just think of those, those just, if you remember nothing from today, think of those three words. God invented Jupiter. And just let that just marinate in your mind for a week. That's just, that just blows your mind that God came up with that. And Psalm 8 says, When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place. The psalm is saying, like if we can imagine Jupiter, let's just talk about Jupiter because it is big. I know it's not bigger than the sun. I know that there are stars that are bigger than our sun, but my mind starts to just stop at Jupiter. Like once we get past Jupiter, I can't think of anything. Anyway, we'll go with Jupiter. But imagine the, psalm, the psalmist is just envisaging this process, the work of, of God on the heavens, and it's his fingers, it's clockwork, it's miniature scale stuff that, that God is working on here. We're on Jupiter, the largest things in the universe, the heavens and every single star in the galaxy is the work of his fingers. This is God. And not only that, but he sustains everything that he has created. God is actively involved in the preservation of every single molecule in the universe. But like, what, if we ask the question, what's stopping us right now from floating away into the sky? Gravity? Cool. What's keeping gravity going? Like, I don't know. I googled it. It's the spin of the Earth. I don't understand how that works, but that's what's going on. So the Earth's rotation? Sure, let's, let's go with that. But what's keeping the Earth rotating? Inertia? Sure. Okay, let's go with that. What's, who is making sure that there's no resistance to the Earth's inertia? Who got that going in the first place? Who is keeping this going? The answer is God. God is keeping this going. And on and on and on we could go about every single thing in the universe. What's keeping my body together right now? Your skin? Sure, but who's keeping the skin doing what skin should be doing? Who's making sure the skin is obeying skin rules? Like it's just, it, it, like Hebrews 1.3 says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So if God were to take his, his sustaining hand away from us, his sustaining word away from us, we would disintegrate into a trillion, trillion particles and dissolve and disappear from existence altogether. God is sustaining every single molecule of our body. That's who is walking towards them on the water. And that makes perfect sense of the very next sentence. He was coming near the boat and they were afraid. Yeah, I would be afraid too. This is the bush on fire. This is the danger. This is the proximity to the lion. This is God. No wonder they were afraid. They had seen him heal the sick. They had seen him turn water into wine. They had seen him multiply bread. And I'm not sure what their thoughts about him were before the lake, but this is next level. This is next level. But he said to them in verse 20, It is I. Don't be afraid. And that there is the bush not being consumed. It's me. You don't have to be afraid. It's Jesus. This is the holy creator dwelling with the broken and rebellious creation without destroying us. This is God incarnate. This is the word of God became flesh and tabernacling with us 
as John says right at the beginning of his gospel. Somehow, in the incarnation, the holy and infinite God of the universe came close to sinful humanity without incinerating mankind. Jesus, on the water saying, it is I, don't be afraid, it is the fulfillment of the bush that was burning but not being destroyed. In fact, if you look at Jesus' words there, when he says, it is I, in the original Greek, they are the exact same set of words that God uses at the burning bush to give Moses his name, I am. We could translate, it is I as I am. In other words, verse 20 we could read, but he said to them, I am, don't be afraid. Now, before we get too excited about that, because I got really excited about that this week, then I read some Greek linguists who said, hold your horses, because that is actually a, a perfectly acceptable way of saying it's me. There's other people who use those words to say, to identify themselves. However, considering the vast array of the I am statements in John, and considering the first one is going to come the very next day in Jesus' time there, I think we can at the very least take this to be an instruction to the disciples to start thinking bigger about who Jesus is. He is God. Maybe the disciples were, were thinking of Jesus as their friend, the miracle worker who did cool things. Maybe they were identifying him as the Messiah, this important person who was going to come and actually deal with the Romans. But had they really considered that this guy was the second person of the Trinity? In other words, Jesus is too big for their puny little boat. And here's what I think this passage is urging us to do. And this is what, I, this is I, what I'm urging each one of us to do, including myself. We're being urged to think bigger about Jesus. To stop treating Jesus in the categories of the things that we want him to do for us and instead to enlarge our thinking about who Jesus is. To, to put away the small categories, to put away the, the I'll get to that some stage kind of thought about Jesus. But, for, but to actually treat him as the centre of the universe that he truly is. How do we do this? How, how can we think bigger about Jesus? Well, we could spend a lot of time looking at mountains and daisies and creation, and that would be really good. That would be nice. But we need more, to, more than that. What we need to do is look at God as he came to dwell with humanity. We need to look at the real burning bush. We need to look at Jesus. Because in Jesus, we have the dangerous infinity of the eternal God of the universe drawing close to mankind without annihilating mankind. How did he do this? How does Jesus do this? It's the cross. It's the cross. The cross is the only way that we can draw close to God. Without the cross, we cannot come close to God. We cannot know who he is. You see, the cross communicates two immense truths to us. The first truth is this. Our sin is that bad. Our sin is that bad. We might second guess that. We might try and downplay that. We might say, oh, no, like, I, I get the, the sins of the whole world. Yeah, sure. Like, you know, the addition of all of them, the sum of all of them. But mine, mine drop in the water, really. drop in the ocean, really. No, our sin is that bad. It also communicates to us that his love is that great. 
We've got to see our sin for what it is. It is the unholy and rebellious mess that directly caused the death of the Son of God. And we've also got to see the sacrifice of Jesus for what it was, the absolute and eternal pardoning for all of the sins for those who trust in him. That when we look at Jesus, when we look at the cross, we've got to see, yes, it was our sin that put him there, and yes, it was his love that put him there, his love for us that put him there. I came across this prayer this week by Thomas Brooks. He says, he prays, Father, if I think of my sins and of your wrath, if I think of my guilt and of your justice, my heart faints and fails and sinks into despair if I do not also think of Christ. This is a precious truth, worth more than a world, that all my sins are pardoned, not only through mercy, but also by justice. Here's the thing. God doesn't forgive sin by pretending that the sins were not that bad or by excusing or by ceasing to be God and not holding up justice. God forgives sin by sending Jesus to bring justice, to, to pay our debt. And Jesus was the one who received uh, the, the, the justice of God, the full wrath of God on our behalf. Uh, that, that is the measure of his great love for us. What we're being urged to do here is think bigger about Jesus. To get our minds and our hearts and our, and our thoughts on the cross of Jesus. Constantly, not just on Sunday mornings as a reminder, which is good, but constantly. In, in, in the face of every single frustration, every single letdown, every single disappointment, every single heartache, every single moment of feeling lost, get our eyes on the cross of Jesus and go, no, he's got to be bigger. He is bigger. He is bigger than my expectations. This happened for me last night. I sat down to kind of finish off the sermon and I just looked at the words on the screen. I just thought, this is a dog's breakfast and I feel weak. I feel like I've got nothing left and I honestly just did not want to come here this morning. And went out on my deck and read that prayer from this book of prayers that someone gave me. And that prayer just was like, you're justified in Christ. So you're fine. That, that's our strength. That we are justified in Christ. Jesus is bigger than any, any frustration, any heartache, any loss, any just like maybe you've been walking through rubbish for the last few months. Get your, get your mind and your heart and your, your eyes on the cross of Jesus Christ. See in it that he is the one who saves us. He is the one who rescues us from our sin. He is the one who, who laid down his life for us. In order to give us his righteousness, we are made right before God. See, here's the thing. If we don't do this, if we don't think bigger about Jesus, if the Jesus we believe in is small, you'll shrug your shoulder at sin. You'll see sin in your own life and you go, eh, it's all right, it's it's not great, but it's not good. It's not bad. You'll also think of obedience only in terms of getting God off your back. You'll think, I just need to obey this one thing and that way God will stop bothering me. And you'll also find Christianity, following Jesus, utterly boring. It will be a boring waste of time. But if we enlarge 
our understanding of who Jesus is. And I'm not saying, make, I'm not saying let's make Jesus bigger than who he is because we can't do that. What I'm saying is don't try and fit Jesus into your life. Find your life in him. Continue to go to him in his word. Understanding, understand the great magnitude of who he is. The fulfillment of the Old Testament. If you're in the habit of only reading the Old Testament, brother, sister, read the Old Testament. It makes so much more, the New Testament makes so much more sense when you read through the Old Testament. And we're not, I'm not saying let's make Jesus bigger than he is. I'm saying let's get, find ourselves lost in who Jesus is. And when it comes to the sin in our own lives, we won't shrug at it. We'll see it as the rebellion that it is, and we will gladly do whatever we can to obey Jesus. And following Jesus will be filled with joy. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.